0: you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 26. We'll be reading the entirety of Acts chapter 26, and so if you'd prefer not to stand for 32 verses, you're welcome to remain uh, seated as always, Uh, but if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word? Let us give our attention to the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason... The Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. You've told us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we receive this, your word, as our very life. Lord, would you open our eyes, help us to behold wonderful things in your word, and by your Holy Spirit, give us understanding so that we might receive these things which are written, believe them, uh, and lay them up in our hearts, practice them in our lives, all for your glory. We pray that in all things, Lord, you might help us to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. We've come to this point in our uh, series in the book of Acts where we are finally at last at the last defense that Paul makes before a group of either his accusers or those in authority. Uh, This is the fifth defense that we've read and preached on in the book, so you've probably felt some of that repetition as we've gone through uh, these last several chapters. Paul, you'll remember, was... Uh, harassed and arrested at the temple in Jerusalem, and gave an immediate defense to the mob who had surrounded him. Uh, the mob of Jews who were accusing him of different things. He gave his defense. He he talked about meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus and how Jesus called him to this mission. And they got angry at that and they hauled him off. The Roman authorities hauled him off. The next day, he gave another defense before the the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. He was able to kind of divide them between the Pharisees and the Sadducees as he testified once again to having met Jesus risen from the dead, testifying to the hope of resurrection. He appeared again before uh, the governor of Caesarea, Felix, and then uh, Felix's successor, Festus, and now here before Uh, the kind of pseudo-Jewish king Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, the the grandson of the the Herod that we all know from the Christmas story. Uh, Here we have Paul's final defense. And and what we find Paul doing in this defense before Agrippa and the Roman governor Festus uh, is he is answering the accusations that have been laid against him, these false accusations that have been laid against him by the Jews, But what I want you to see in this defense that Paul gives is he's not really giving a defense. He's not really defending himself. He's not appealing to Roman law. He's not really appealing to any kind of Jewish law. What he's doing as he defends himself is he is making an appeal, an evangelistic appeal. Uh, His defense is Jesus, who Jesus is and all that he has done. And his appeal is that all should believe in him, as the one who gives us hope. Paul defends himself against false claims by showing that the hope on which, for which he is on trial is a proven hope. And so he kind of makes an argument for the reality and the truth of the gospel as it's revealed uh, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Arguments are kind of interesting, right? When we're trying to appeal to somebody, we're trying to convince them of something. We use lots of different means. Uh, growing up, when I was uh, younger, I loved commercials. I don't know why; I just thought they were interesting. Uh, there's, there's not as many good commercials anymore. You probably some of you remember. Where's the beef? I remember that one? Uh, or the guy who talked really fast? That guy? Um, no, maybe not. Uh, I love commercials, and, and as you watch commercials, you realize that part of what they're doing is they're making an argument. They're making an appeal. They're trying to convince you that whatever it is that they're selling, you need. And they do that in different ways, right? Uh, most of the commercials I see nowadays are for medicines. I don't know why the pharmaceutical industry has taken over TV commercials, but what do they do in these commercials? They appeal to the data. And there's evidence. This medicine works for whatever your problem is. Go ask your doctor about it. Uh, And then often there's some sort of personal testimony, right? Somebody says, uh, my life was terrible, and then I started taking this medicine, and everything's great now, and there's this personal testimony. And then sometimes there's even an appeal to authority. Somebody with a white lab coat shows up on the commercial and says, this medicine indeed works. All of these things kind of go into helping us be convinced of something, maybe, if the commercial's successful. There's an appeal to evidence and kind of a logical argument, There's an appeal to personal experience and personal testimony uh, that kind of goes a little bit beyond logic. It's, It's different than that. And then oftentimes there's an appeal to authority. Here's a person who knows what they're talking about. You can trust them. Paul, as he shows that the hope of Jesus is a proven hope, as he appeals evangelistically to Festus and primarily to Agrippa, he appeals to kind of a rational argument An argument from logic, he appeals to his own personal life, his testimony of how God was at work in him, how God changed him, and then he points to the scriptural argument. He points back to the Bible and how all of the promises that God has made throughout redemptive history that have been written in the scriptures have all come to fulfillment in Jesus and his resurrection. So keep that in mind. There's a rational argument. There's a personal argument. There's a scriptural argument going on here. As we see Paul showing this proven hope of Jesus in three different ways, let's look first at God's power. Paul makes an argument for Jesus and the reality of the gospel by appealing to God's power. He does this in a couple of ways. Notice in verse 8, he kind of makes this general appeal. Verse 8, he asks this question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Notice what he's doing here. He's he's kind of asking a question and getting people to think out the logic of this. If if there's a God who is almighty and all-powerful, then we should not be surprised that he has the ability to raise people from the dead. He created everything by the word of his power in the space of six days and declared it all very good. If he has that kind of creative power, we should not think it incredible, unbelievable that God is able to raise the dead. He's the author and the giver of life. So Paul kind of appeals to this general argument and follow the logic. He says, if God is who he says he is, if he's almighty and powerful, then we shouldn't be surprised that He can raise the dead and shouldn't doubt that claim when it happens. And yet many of us do this. We make the mistake of thinking that somehow in order to believe God and his promises, we somehow have to fully understand his ways. We somehow have to fit him within our categories of thinking. We have to understand and comprehend God. I remember sitting at the mechanic one time. um, I used to have a Volvo and so... I was often at the Volvo mechanic, I was sitting in the lobby at the Volvo mechanic. And there was another uh, gentleman in the lobby there with me. And somehow we got to talking about going to church and the Bible and Jesus and things like this. And um, I think sometimes I have a sign on my head that people that I can't see but other people can see that says, talk to me about Jesus. Uh, but we were there, we were sitting, you know, just perfect strangers and started talking about religion, basically. And I was sharing with him things that I believed. And and he said He said, you know, I go to church, I've gone to church my whole life, um, but I just, I can't, I can't believe. I can't, I can't accept the things uh, that are taught there. And I said, so what do you mean you can't accept the things? He said, well, you know, we, we confess the Nicene Creed in our church. His church used the Nicene Creed as part of their worship service. And part of what that creed says is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, a profound mystery. Uh, No human mind can fully grasp and explain that reality, and yet that's what the scriptures teach. And he said, I just can't fit that in my head. I just can't fully comprehend how that could be, and so I, I don't believe it. See what he was doing. His standard was, what makes sense to me? And if it doesn't make sense to me, if I can't comprehend it, if I can't explain it, then it can't be true, I can't believe it. And yet faith calls us not to believe the irrational uh, that that's a different thing. The faith calls us to look to the God who is able to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That this God is so powerful, so great that we can't capture Him and fit Him into our minds and our expectations of what He should be able to do. We know that God can do all things except deny His own character. He cannot lie. He cannot break His promises. He cannot die. But other than that, God can do all that he desires. He can accomplish all his holy will. Paul appeals to God's power in kind of this general way. If God is who he is, why is it incredible to think that he could raise the dead? He is able. But notice, he doesn't just stop at God's power in kind of this general argument. Almighty God, he can raise the dead. Paul says, look at me. (laughs) He raised me from the dead. You see, that, that personal experience, that personal testimony that goes beyond just kind of a logical appeal and evidence. He's saying, I know that this is true, not just in general, but because I've experienced it. And so he tells the story, right? In my youth growing up in Jerusalem, I was part of the strictest party of our religion, the Pharisees. And I was even so zealous for my faith that I was filled with rage and fury. I mean, look at the language that he uses to describe himself in verse 11. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He says, if there was ever a candidate for conversion, it wasn't me. I was dead set against these Christians, persecuting them, punishing them, hauling them off to jail, I think he very much has in view Stephen here when he says, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He never, I don't think he ever forgot Stephen. He says, if there was anybody who was a candidate to be converted to this, it was not I. But God's power is greater than even my sin, Paul says. Because he met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus knocks him off of his donkey. Knocks him on the ground, blinds him with the Shekinah glory, the temple glory of God, and appearing to him on the road to Damascus, speaking to him, revealing himself. And we see this hint of power, if you will, in Jesus' words in verse 14, where he says to Paul, It is hard for you to kick against the goats. This is the only place in Paul's own personal testimony where he, where he, tells us that Jesus said that to him. What is he talking about? What's a goad? What is this? A goad was kind of a sharp uh, pointed stick that shepherds or other kind of animal handlers would use to get the animal to go in the direction that he wanted it to go. And if the animal was being stubborn, you know, he'd kind of kick against it. And there was no overcoming it. The shepherd or the animal handler would just keep poking him with the goads until he went in the right direction. In other words, Jesus is telling Paul... You can't resist my power. God is powerful. He's powerful to change us. Paul describes this change in different ways in his other letters. He says there's an objective change in us in our status that the resurrected Jesus overcomes. We change from being condemned in our sin to being declared righteous in Christ. There's an objective change in status we go from being unrighteous before God because of our sin to being given the righteousness of Jesus Jesus in a declared status we are righteous in Christ we are justified by faith it's a once for all change not only that but there's a relational change not only in our legal status no longer condemned but justified but there's a relational change in status No longer strangers and outsiders, but beloved children. We're adopted by God and brought into his kingdom. This is power. This is what Paul means when he talks about the power of God in the gospel. He changes our status. No longer condemned, but justified. No longer outsiders, but beloved members of the family. Citizens of a kingdom that has no end. There's an objective change. But there's also an experiential change subjective change within us. Paul calls it sanctification. He doesn't just change our status externally. He changes us from the inside out. It's the only explanation for why Paul could go from raging fury against Jesus and his people to a deep love and adoration of Jesus and his people and growth in grace. Do you believe that there is power in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of God by which he raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, is at work in you today. I think sometimes it's easy for us to perhaps forget that or perhaps to think that God's power is somehow limited by our circumstances, by our ability or perhaps our inability There's an interesting place in the Gospels where Jesus highlights the power of the Gospel through faith. He says uh, to his disciples, um, if, if anyone has faith as small as a mustard seed, he can say to that mountain, move from here to there and it will obey. Now you might look at that and go... Oh, is this like some sort of new marketing technique for Christians engaged in the earth-moving industry? You don't need an excavator, you don't need a bulldozer, you just need faith, and you can move mountains. Is that what he's talking about? That seemed m- more humorous in my head when I thought about it. And I feel like I keep saying that. Y'all need to laugh at my jokes a little more. It's, aston- it's an astonishing statement, right? Say to a mountain, move, boom, it moves. What? I've never moved a mountain. I don't understand this. What is Jesus talking about? He's speaking metaphorically, speaking symbolically about the power of God to do the impossible or what, what we think is impossible, humanly speaking, and he does it through faith. God changes our lives in ways that we think are impossible. Paul looked at himself and he said, I was a Pharisee, full of raging fury against Jesus and his people. And Jesus changed me. By the power of his resurrection, the risen Jesus changed me. Listen, if you belong to Jesus, God is at work through that same power changing you, and therefore you can have hope. Let me just say two two brief things about this. Sometimes Jesus changes us in an instant way. This was my experience in coming to Christ, that there were certain Sinful patterns of behavior and desires that were in my heart that the Lord just took away, and they did not plague me anymore. Certain things I have never struggled with as a believer that were part of my life before I came to Christ, and He He, he just took it from me, and I couldn't have done it. But He didn't take everything from me, <laughs> and and you know that there's always things that we struggle with. There's always things that we. Uh, have to constantly bring before the Lord in repentance and faith, Lord, help me, help my unbelief, help me to die to this sin so that I can live for you. And it's as if Jesus is saying, look, I, I, I did this one thing instantaneously to remind you of my power that is still at work in an ongoing way, that you can trust me to be at work by divine resurrection power to change your life. Second thing I want to say about that, just briefly, is... When I think about our church, when when I pray for our church, um, I try not to cry. So just bear with me. Uh, I'm so thankful because I see uh, signs of God, of of health, spiritual vitality, and life among God's people here, and that's such an encouraging thing to behold. And yet, at the same time, I also think there's health and there's there's hurt, right? Um, mm. so many of us are weighed down with the things that are hurting us. Uh, We're wounded, we're suffering, we're weary saints. Um, And there are lots of reasons for that. Long-term physical suffering, relational challenges, uh, whatever it may be, uh, I think everybody in this room is experiencing that in some measure or another. We have health, praise God, and we hurt. And the power of the resurrection is not abstract from either of those things. It's that power that brings spiritual vitality and life and health. And it's that power that gives us hope in the midst of hurting. To know that if God raised Jesus from the dead, conquering sin, moving us, as Paul says, from from the power of Satan to the power of God covering over our sin with righteousness so that it will never come back up against us again, never. That if he's done those and if we believe that, then there is hope and comfort for all of us because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul appeals to God's power. He's a big God. He can do anything. Why would it be incredible to think that he could raise the dead? Look at me. He raised me from the dead as well. God's power is at work in us. But not only does he make this personal appeal, he makes an appeal to God's prophets. He makes an appeal to God's prophets. Uh, notice, notice how Paul gets at this. After his testimony of meeting Jesus, he, um, he says in verse 22 that from, that from the day that that happened, he has testified both to small and great, saying nothing. But what the prophets said, prophets and Moses said would come to pass, namely that the Christ would suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. And then again, he appeals to King Agrippa and says, Do you believe the prophets? What's Paul doing here? Part of what Paul is at work doing in this defense and this appeal is saying, the hope that my people have had. From ancient times, this ancient scriptural hope that they have had, they need to see that it has now been fulfilled through the resurrection of Jesus and that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses and the prophets said. We get a hint of this in, or not a hint, it's said explicitly at the end of Luke's gospel after Jesus has risen from the dead. He's making various appearances to his disciples, and there's that beautifully famous. First Bible study uh, of the early church, Jesus teaching these two disciples on the road to Emmaus how all of the scriptures is about him. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been part of that Bible study? Uh, The things we would understand better had we been there. But part of what we do understand, Jesus told his disciples there, he said... This is, I, I am the one to whom all of the prophets and Moses and even the Psalms testify that the Christ would suffer and would rise again from the third day, on the third day. And he opened their eyes to see that all of the scriptures had been pointing to him. Jesus does the same thing in his interaction with the Jewish leaders in John's gospel in John, uh, I believe, chapter five. There's this back and forth debate and he says, you're searching the scriptures But I'm the one that you should be searching for because I'm the one that the scriptures point to. I am the fulfillment of what the scriptures have said. Now, you might read the Old Testament and go, I don't see where it says that Jesus will die and rise again on the third day. What's this about? Does it say that explicitly? There's bigger patterns is what Paul is pointing to. There's a pattern of a redeemer who is humiliated, suffers, and then is exalted rises. Think of Isaiah's suffering servant. He bears the iniquity of his people. He is chastened for their shortcoming, for their sin. He bears God's wrath in their place, and yet at the same time, he rejoices to see all those who are brought to salvation through his work. There's humiliation and exaltation, or you can think of Joseph in the book of Genesis his brothers reject him. They, they leave him for death. He is humbled all the way at the bottom of a pit, and he's bought by slave traders, brought to Egypt, and he's humbled all the way into jail for two years. And then what happens? He's exalted. He's raised to this position of immense prominence in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And what does God do through that? He saves his people through Joseph's humiliation, and exaltation. God, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many. There's this pattern of humiliation and exaltation, and Paul is saying all, those patterns are all pointing to the Messiah, the Christ who would suffer for his people and would rise again on the third day to give life to his people. There's a pattern. There's also explicit predictions about the Messiah who would come and do this. Paul points to God's prophets as a way of saying all of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. This is the thing that they've been hoping for, earnestly worshiping God night and day in anticipation of this hope, and it's come in the resurrection of Jesus, and they rejected it. Paul points back to the scriptures and says these were all about Christ. He has come and he has fulfilled them. Finally, not only does he point to God's prophets, but Paul makes his plea. There's this interesting interaction near the end of Paul's speech where he's been testifying to the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, pointing to the scriptures, saying Jesus is the fulfillment. He rose just like the scriptures said he would. Uh, and this is what I've been proclaiming. Everything that Moses and the prophets said, that Christ would suffer and rise again on the third day. He'd be the first to rise and through him proclaim light As he's saying these things, verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. You're nuts. This is bonkers. People don't rise from the dead. Festus is a good Greek. He's a good Roman emperor. He would not have believed uh, anything like resurrection. He would have believed you die and that's it. Poof, Uh, you're, you're done. And so it's not unusual that Festus would hear this and say, you're, you're out of your mind. This doesn't make any sense. And so Paul responds to him and says, I'm not, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. They happened. And then he looks at Agrippa. And he says, Agrippa, you know that these things have happened. They haven't happened in a corner. The resurrection of Jesus was a public event. He died, and then the tomb was empty. It wasn't a secret tomb. They knew where he was. It wasn't a secret crucifixion. People saw him die. And they saw that the tomb was empty. Jesus appeared to many people after his resurrection, 500 at one time. No such thing as mass hallucination. 500 people say they saw the same thing at the same time. Guess what? They saw the same thing at the same time. It's a public event. And so Paul appeals to Agrippa, says these things have not been done in a corner. You, you've heard about them. You believe the prophets, don't you? And notice what what Agrippa says in verse 28. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Some translations put it as a statement. You know, in a short while, you're going to make me a Christian. I I think it's a question. And I think what's going on here is Agrippa suddenly realizes that Paul is not making a legal defense. That from beginning to end, Paul's been looking at Agrippa as well as Festus, but mainly Agrippa saying, this is what the prophets say. Uh, this is what has been taught. This is what we've hoped for. And this, is, this has come to pass through the resurrection of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Agrippa's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you trying to convince me to become a Christian? Are you appealing to me? Are you trying to evangelize me? And he, he shrugs him off. He dismisses him. But notice Paul's, the value that Paul places on knowing Jesus in this way. His response Whether short or long, verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. In other words, Paul is saying to Agrippa, to Festus, to all of us, even in these chains, even in this imprisonment, even under false accusation, The value of knowing Jesus is so much better than anything else. And so, yes, I hope that everyone becomes like I am in the sense of knowing the hope, the power of the risen Lord Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, and knowing, as he says, that you have a place, that you belong to the God of the universe, that he has welcomed you into his family and has promised for you an eternal home that will never diminish, that you belong to a kingdom that has no end. All the kingdoms of earth rise and fall, but the kingdom of God is forever. It's eternal. It's lasting. It never diminishes. And so Paul makes this plea saying, even though I'm in chains, I wish everybody could be like I am. Because knowing Jesus is so much better than anything the world has to offer. Where do you find yourself this morning Do you find yourself longing for God's power to be at work in your life, changing you, perhaps simply sustaining you and giving you hope in the midst of life's troubles? Look to the risen Jesus. He is able and willing to give you hope. God is able in his power to give you hope because he has raised Jesus from the dead. He's conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered death itself. He's able to be at work in your life. Or do you find yourself like Festus and Agrippa? This is bonkers. This is nuts. There's no way this could be the case, either because you think it's too good to be true or because you think, i got to work hard to get what you're talking about. I've got to earn the kind of favor and welcome that you're saying God gives to those who believe in Jesus. It can't be as simple as just believing. It can't be as simple and easy as just receiving promises by faith. And yet that is the good news of the good news. That what is offered to us is a salvation accomplished by another. Jesus in our place. And it's, and it's offered for all who would take it who would receive it as the gift as it is, and in receiving it, know that their sins are forgiven, and they have righteousness, and they're adopted into God's family, and they've got a place. They belong to him indelibly so. Paul, in his defense, as he points to God's power, as he points to God's prophets, and as he points to as he pleads with us as he pleads with us rather encourages believers to have confidence that God is able that his power is for you you can trust that what he has said is true because Jesus has risen from the dead and to those who are skeptical and not yet believing paul is saying to you and reminding you the claims of christ are not easily dismissed They were not done in a corner. They are not impotent in their effect. They change lives. Jesus changes lives. And therefore, you ought to consider his claims and his call to repentance and faith. Weigh his promises. You will not find them wanting. As we come to the Lord's table uh, as part of our worship service, we're all called to remember Uh, that we need forgiveness and that forgiveness has been secured for us through Jesus our Savior and that for all those who have trusted in him, he welcomes you again and again to come to him to find rest, to find hope, a hope that will not fail. Uh, May we do so today. Would you pray with me?